Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I am her looking like a drowned rat this morning co-host, Kathleen Smith, a.k.a. Kiki Planet. How are you doing, Deirdre? I'm doing well. I zinned out this morning before I messed everything up. I'm happy for you. (laughs) Thank you. At least one of us did. Yes. (laughs) And Kathleen, how is your week starting? Uh, not too shabby. It's been a bit of a hectic morning and I've drank too much coffee and I'm having speech problems because of it, but we'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. We're just going to push through. Happy National Indigenous Peoples Day. Also, uh, June is National Indigenous History Month. So there's a whole lot of additional learning opportunities being, I think, widely shared on social media. We have two guests with us today. Our first from the University of Lethbridge, Dr. Caroline Hodes, who is an associate professor in women and gender studies. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. And we also have from the University of Alberta, Dr. Crystal Fraser. Ah, Dr. <laughs> Crystal Fraser, uh, who's an assistant professor in history and native studies. Welcome, Crystal. <laughs> Hi, good afternoon. Great to be here. Uh, we're going to jump right in. First, I want each of you to, I guess, give us a little bit of your background. Um, we were talking earlier about you know, research areas of interest and you know, some of your personal background that I guess that you're bringing to our conversation today. Let's, let's shoot it over <laughs> to Dr. Hodes. Let's start with you. Hey, hi, um, I'm Dr. Rose, and uh, my my research, I just got some funding actually for a research project um, that is about retrieving um, residential school testimonies from land and title cases, or what I call claims to Indigenous sovereignty, that are not really at the forefront of the conversation on truth and reconciliation in Canada, because they've been offered in the context of claims to sovereignty and not in the context of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself. And so I started this research back in 2017, and I got some shirk funding to go around and kind of look at at the testimonies that are kept in court registries across the country um, and to see how people were talking about reconciliation and what kinds of testimonies were being given in these different cases. And so I chose seven pivotal Indigenous rights and title cases that have been named national firsts, interestingly enough. Canada kind of reclaims this stuff and says, you know, uh, the court did such a great job and they made a declaration of Indigenous land title and actually it's, you know, the, the state is responsible for all of the denial of Indigenous land and so I'm questioning the notion of these national firsts of the reclamation uh, or the the claiming that Canada does in terms of its national firsts and the reclamation of these testimonies and these cases as claims to sovereignty. And so I've, I've just gotten some funding to actually interview people who testified in these cases and who um, initiated these cases to be able to see what they want done with their documents because they're not housed at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and nobody seems to really know what to do with the documents and we're talking about shipping pallets full of legal documents so so yeah it's a it's a very interesting area um, I find and and very relevant to today's conversation obviously it's a huge part of the history of reclaiming of land back um, and Dr. Fraser. Uh, Shori Crystal Gale Fraser Vilji, Nuvik Dechen Chogenjik, Gwitsak 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 Gwitsak
Uh, hi, my name is Crystal. Um, I'm Gwichia Gwichin Treaty 11, originally from Inuvik, uh, Northwest Territories, and Dechencho Genjik, which is my fish camp on the Mackenzie River. Um, I've lived on beautiful Treaty 6, homeland of the Métis Nation, since 2004 with my partner and my five-year-old daughter. Um, I finished my PhD in Canadian history in 2019, um, and, and that work has won the John Bullen Prize to the Canadian Historical Association. And I took up this job here, uh, cross-appointed between history and NATO studies um, about a year and a half ago. And, and so I'm new on the job um, and, thinking about what my next uh, research project is going to be. My doctoral work looked at the history of Indian residential schools in the Inuvik region. And that's currently um, under contract with the University of Manitoba Press. And COVID has really interrupted a lot of my research. I do community engaged research. I do oral histories. Um, the North is at, at the center of everything and um, the borders to the Northwest Territories have been closed since March, 2020. Uh, so I've had to reconceive um, my research a little bit, uh, but it's it's really been, um, yeah, my pleasure to turn towards more of an Alberta focused history, um, looking at residential schools here, um, and in particular, uh, working with the archivists at the Provincial Archives of Alberta um, just since last week when they've reopened because of COVID and investigating the archival trail of student deaths at um, residential schools in Alberta. Okay. Oh, I, I think maybe a good starting point for us today would be just to start with the very basic for our, our listeners. So why don't we start with uh, truth and reconciliation and what that actually means and what it should mean. Because I, I think the, the two words get said so much right now that they've lost meaning to a lot of people and too many Canadians don't understand what truth and reconciliation is actually about, what the objective is and what we're, what, is hoped to be accomplished through truth and reconciliation. So Dr. Hodes, let's start with you. Perhaps you could just give us a, a brief synopsis on the phrase truth and reconciliation, what the deeper meaning is for indigenous persons in this nation. Well, I can't speak on behalf of all indigenous persons. <laughs> of course, we know you're not a monolith. We want to or I can't speak on behalf of Indigenous persons, period. <laughs> I, I can say that um, I, I do follow a number of scholars who and lawyers and litigators who call for truth before reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I think we've done a huge leap in this country over the truth and gone straight to this notion of reconciliation. And that's why reconciliation becomes quite hollow um, in the context of of Canada's uh, bids to to provide some kind of redress, um, if, if for lack of a better word. Um, so I, I would say that given the the recent uh, findings in Kamloops, 
um, that it's important to, to recognize that this has been a, an open secret in Indigenous communities for a very long time, that there are remains of children on all residential school sites, and that the government has actively fought paying for the retrieval of these remains on these residential school sites, and that even... Um, I mean, it's it's really quite amazing to take note that despite um, the claims, so there, there have been um, uh, different kinds of court cases that have moved forward, and and as Cindy Blackstock has described in detail um, in terms of the litigation, uh, litigating for change and the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society case that acknowledged both the racism and responsibility of Canada in the current and ongoing treatment of Indigenous children in on-reserve child welfare services programs that these programs have been likened to an extension of the residential school system. So the point here is that, you know, the foundation of the Canadian settler nation involves killing kids. It involves settler colonial practices. It involves all of the racisms and white supremacy and the changing modalities of settler colonialism that we can see taking place in the context of, of the family that was actually mowed down. There's a connection between settler colonialism and Islamophobia and anti-Indigenous racisms and anti-Black racisms and anti anti-Asian racisms in this country that have been at, you know, at the forefront of the news. And until we start making these connections and acknowledging, you know, there's a great debate over what counts as Canadian. Well, racisms count as Canadian. White supremacy counts as Canadian. Settler colonialism counts as Canadian. That is what Canada is formed out of. And so there's this common trope for instance, that racisms or ignorance or that we have to, in order to reconcile or engage in reconciliation, we have to remedy people's ignorance. But actually, no, I, I'm going to dispute that point and say that racisms are carefully constructed bodies of knowledge that people choose to adhere to. And until we can deconstruct that and get at the roots of things, and that means all of the settler colonial policy and practice in this country that creates the conditions for the kind of violence that, that killed the kids in residential schools, that mowed down um, that family uh, on the street. Uh, these, these are the things we need to address in this country. Um, and until we do that, we're, we're no closer to the truth or reconciliation. And the more research I do, the more dislike I have for the term reconciliation because it's almost like asking people who've endured extreme amounts of violence to reconcile with perpetrators and abusers and a state that perpetuates ongoing violence. It's not, it's not the job of people who've been abused to reconcile with their abuser. You know, I, I think that goes to, to the, uh, the idea that somehow the onus is on in indigenous persons, uh, people of color, to drag us out of our ignorance, to do the work to teach us instead of doing the work on our own to contribute to the conversations and to the solution finding in a, in a more fulsome way. I, I think there's still a lot of that sort of expectation placed on Indigenous persons to drag us with them when it obviously is not the solution. Absolutely. Dr. Dr. Fraser, 
perhaps you could speak to us a bit about what what your perception of the the current status of truth and reconciliation in Canada is and what we need to do to improve that and to move forward to accomplish real things. Yeah, great question. And please call me Crystal. Um, I, I will say that, you know, truth and reconciliation, this is not new to Canada. There has been dozens of other truth and reconciliation commissions internationally, Ecuador, South, uh, South Africa. Um, and so when this commission started uh, its, its formal work, um, you know, Canadians had very little knowledge of this uh, white supremacist colonial system. Um, residential schools was only one aspect of that. But I think what the TRC did was it launched conversations about residential schools and narratives of Indigenous peoples finally able to tell their own stories publicly, um, launched them into Canadian discourse in a way where um, you, you know, often there wasn't a day or a week where the TRC wasn't making headlines. And so I think by uh, educating people, by spurring this conversation, that inherently was a good thing. I will say, though, that Indigenous peoples have been um, engaged in this process of, of calling for reconciliation for decades, even over a century. Um, and so that's important to note that this work has really been underway for a very, very long time. And I mean, even if we look back historically um, in the 1960s, you know, the Hawthorne Report, um, anthropologist Harry Hawthorne was hired, um, UBC prof, by the way, to investigate so, uh, socioeconomic conditions. Um, fast forwarding a number of years, we have RCAP. Um, we then had the TRC. Now, the seen and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, which, you know, according to my assessment, that is, is all but already forgotten. Um, we're now five, more than five years out of the TRC's um, final report, 94 calls to action. Um, you know, a, a month ago, eight of the 94 calls had been accomplished or implemented. That was down one from 2019. In 2019, nine were accomplished. Uh, about two weeks ago on international news, I heard Mr. Jagmeet Singh say that we're now at, at 12 of the 94 um, have been implemented. This is pathetic. Um, unnecessary, you know, we need to be doing much, much better. Not only that, given since uh, since the 94 calls to action and the good work of the TRC, we've seen this federal government buy a pipeline. We have seen Gerald Stanley be acquitted for the murder of Colton Bushi. We have seen Joyce Eshaquan die in hospital in an unnecessary way. Um, you know, yes, the news of the possible 215 um, children, their remains found in Kamloops, that has made sensational headlines over the last few weeks internationally. I spoke about it on CBS New York TV, um, which on the one hand, grateful for that platform and I'm glad it's getting international news, but in Indigenous communities, this is not a surprise. I mean, yes, it is one thing to know that our ancestors uh, were killed and, and are possibly missing. It's, it's another thing to have that 
thrust into um, colonial media structures. And so I think this concept of truth and reconciliation, I don't think we're ever gonna know the truth. Um, indigenous histories are still going to be marginalized. We are still you know, under the leadership of Jason Kenney and a UCP government calling John A. Macdonald, quote, a great leader. Um, so I don't think we're ever going to know the truth. And honestly, uh, the political system in Canada is so inherently colonial that I don't believe reconciliation can ever be achieved. So where do we go with that then? <laughs> I know that's a very big question. It's a very complicated question. Uh, what, what should be our path forward if reconciliation simply cannot be achieved? I, I don't want to give our, our listeners the idea that means we should just stop trying because obviously we can never stop trying. We have to move forward on this. Uh, so perhaps you could give us some ideas about what needs to change and change immediately for reconciliation to progress whatsoever. And I just want to narrow that down just a little bit <clears throat> because I, I kind of want to go back to something that both of you talked about, which was Indigenous people know that these things have been hidden. I think this is one of the things that is, it's surprising and not surprising, right? It's not surprising to Indigenous people that the, that, that there are bodies buried on every residential school. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise to white people either. It, it shouldn't. At this point, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone in this nation who actually knows the history. I mean, I, I wasn't surprised. But a lot of people don't. Like this was, this was something that we talked about as well with my mother had said it, but my mother and grandmother lived with me for a little bit during the pandemic. This had come up at the time. And I remember both of them saying to me, um, you know, well, I thought this was, I thought this is what this was. I thought it was this. And like, we've, we have, we have generations, literally generations of um, settlers as well, who this truth was also hidden from them, right? And you're talking about people who came of age in, you know, before social media, before the internet. I mean, hell, I almost did, right? Um, these, are, these are not things that were readily available to people who weren't looking for them, not in a way that they are now. So there's these entrenched, um, there's an entrenched understanding that is generational that, that this is a lot of things that a lot of people are just learning, right? I can pass that on to my mother and to my grandmother during those conversations, but, but there's a lot that we, that they didn't know and they weren't told and they were, and I mean, this was hidden not, this was hidden not just from Indigenous peoples trying to find answers, this was hidden from settlers as well because they didn't want to admit that it was an issue. So does it start with, as you said, truth? It starts with the truth. Does it start with advocacy towards the governments to release that truth? Does it, does it make its way 
into our education. I mean, it has to make it its way into our education system. But like, is that a place to start on some of this? Because it, because it is, it's, it's a generational issue. What you're saying sounds a lot like white privilege. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's um, fine, I guess, on the one hand, that a lot of people don't know about this information. Uh, for me, you know, I'm an educator at the U of A. I'm also Indigenous. Um, you know, my mother and grandmother were institutionalized at Indian residential schools. I could have been if I lived in a smaller community. I lived right across the street from Grolier Hall, one of the most notorious institutions in Canada for sexual assault. Um, and, you know, we didn't really talk about residential schools until I was in my 20s. And so there was so much trauma and shame and uh, loss of identity that that we just literally couldn't bring ourselves to talk about it. Um, and so I see what you're saying in the sense that sometimes the materials or the resources just weren't available. Uh, today, nobody has that excuse what, whatsoever, no. yeah. right? Um, and, you know, to kind of go back to Kathleen's question about how do we move forward? You know, I think there are just off the top of my mind, a handful of things that can be done. So number one, implement those 94 calls to action, like full stop, no excuse. Um, number two, abolish the Indian Act. We still have legislation in this country from 1867 that controls uh, whether my daughter is recognized as Indigenous in this Canada or not. Um, it, it still goes on blood quantum theory. It is still highly oppressive. It is still uh, anti-women and gendered. Get rid of the Indian Act. We need some kind of a new agreement. Land back. Um, if not land back, then you better be signing treaties with every single nation um, that sits on unceded land. And even the nations who are treaty partners start to uphold the treaty renegotiate you know I don't want my five dollars per year thank you I would like something um, that is actually helpful um, and so those are three really big places to start um, I'm sure Carolyn has more to add now I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying Crystal because the recommendations of the TRC were, were made in the RCAP right they were made you know, almost 30 years ago. And, and my mother gave testimony to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. And my father worked for, as it was called then, Health and Welfare Canada Indian Affairs Branch. And so we traveled across the country living in a number of different Indigenous communities, a lot of Dene communities. We lived in Inuvik for a while, uh, Crystal. So I, you know, and, and I, I think that growing up that way, I had language and a knowledge for all of these things before I knew how to articulate it in a public forum like this one, right? And so Crystal's absolutely right. The, the idea that people are ignorant, that's, that's privilege. It is a privilege and a choice. It is a choice to be ignorant right now. It is a choice. You are choosing that ignorance and you can no longer say, oh, I, you know, I just don't know, or I just don't know, or even, and I, I don't mean to, to be rude or insulting, but even to say, I'm still learning. This is what Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang call settler moves to innocence, 
right? Mm -hmm. This notion that I can buy myself a free pass because I just didn't know any better. You know, it's, it's not a matter of not knowing any better. If you claim your citizenship to this country, and this is something that I find hugely problematic about rights rhetoric in Canada, people want all the rights and none of the responsibility, right? They want to go around and proclaim this and that is mine, but they don't want to take the responsibility to know how this, this country was constructed. And here we have in Alberta, the UCP introducing this draconian curriculum that school boards all over the province are refusing to implement that is racist, that involves the denial of residential schools and not teaching kids about residential schools. I, it's unbelievable. It's actually shocking. This government is shocking in its pathological racism and its ongoing settler colonial violence. And people in Alberta can no longer um, pretend that, that this is not something that they know about. We it's, all know about this. It's, it's not a secret it's not hidden it's yeah. been out in the open for well for a century over a century yeah and it's very much uh, a racism for profit Absolutely. with this government too it's racism to to pander to the lowest common denominator it's racism to ensure an electoral win you know, and that's somehow it, it, racism, racism as a result of, of ignorance and hatred is bad. There, there is no other word. It's evil. It's vile. It's bad. But to to watch governments that are supposed to be leading the provinces in this country, this country itself, engage in racist rhetoric simply to ensure they can get votes from racists is beyond disturbing to me. And when, when we have a government that's willing to play that way to stay in power, then any, any land acknowledgement they might utter, any reconciliation talk they might give us is completely without merit or without meaning. Because come election time, they're still going to be more than willing to throw uh, people of color, indigenous persons under the proverbial bus to win votes and retain their power. I, I do appreciate what both of you have said about how ignorance is no longer an excuse. Ignorance isn't a shield anymore for white people who, who like to say, I didn't know, I had no way of knowing, we weren't told. I've had uh, this discussion with one of my children and they said that too. Well, how was anyone supposed to know? How were your parents supposed to know, mom? How were your grandparents supposed to know? And one of the discussions we had that kind of hit home with them was that white privilege can be summed up as spotlight being a huge Oscar winning movie and Everyone knows the story about Catholic priests who sexually molested and abused children, white children in Boston and uh, around North America and uh, in Ireland, but no one knows about what happened at residential schools. And that's the difference. We talk about it when it's white victims. We make sure everyone knows about it. There'll be four or five movies, books, 
news programs when it's white victims. But in this nation, when it's indigenous persons, uh, as, as much as possible, we don't talk about it on either side of the aisle. On the left, we, we're willing to discuss it if we're, um, I hate the term white knighting, white savioring. We're willing to discuss it if we're, we're engaging in white savior behavior, or if it somehow is a cloak of goodness we can wrap around ourselves. <laughs> but we certainly don't want to talk to the realities of it. And now we have a provincial government that wants to delay teaching this history to our children until they're saying it's until the children are mature enough to understand it. My feeling on that is it's until the children are at an age when they don't pay quite as much attention when they're distracted by other things. Then we're going to tell them about it, but not before them. There, there is a ton to unpack there in, in all of this conversation. I mean, I just want to say that, you know, Indigenous communities and nations, we are not perfect. Often we have um, internalized these colonial teachings and, uh, you know, there is also racism in Indigenous communities, lateral violence. Um, you know, someone like me who is Indigenous, I also am white passing, so I benefit in a certain way from white privilege. Um, so really a lot to talk about, but you know, if thousands of white women were either missing or murdered, that would not happen. That would not be a problem. Um, you know, a few years ago, several hundred uh, school children, school girls in an African country were kidnapped and some, some of those little girls are still missing. Had that been white children, um, that would have been international news for however long it took, however many resources we can get behind there. Um, yeah, and, and so this is all to say that uh, it's really my belief that everyone who lives in what is now called Canada has a responsibility to know our history. They have a responsibility to engage as an active citizen. They have a responsibility to try and understand somebody else's perspective. Understand that like not all Indigenous people identify as Canadian. I got married on July 1st so I didn't have to celebrate Canada Day. Um, all of these little nuances and and the way that we practice our cultures, they aren't going to line up with with everything. During all the homeschooling that was going on in the pandemic, I came across um, an insert into uh, my son's social studies and when I saw the way that it was set up I became very concerned about what was being taught and so one of the things that that was in this this insert and this was not like this wasn't downloaded curriculum this was additional things that were added by the by the teacher and one of the things that was in there was is ethnocentrism really a bad thing? And so I, yeah, we had a conversation. So I, I read this and I thought, this is bad. This is, this should not be in my kids. He's grade nine. And, and just the setup of it, it was actually right within, you know, learning about um, 
the Indian Act, learning about, uh, yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. So all of it together is what really kind of, you know, pushed it. It was like, it was bad enough kind of piece by piece, but when you looked at the whole thing and where it was sitting in this particular, we're reading it this way. Um, so I, I happened to have just read something about that. And so when the, the government of Canada, they just recently amended their statement of defense, I believe. And I noticed right away that the language was the same. Um, and I'm reading this out of a CBC article. It said, uh, those languages and cultures were also eroded by, quote, historical, personal, and society circumstances and by interactions between, quote, indigenous communities and the dominant culture. And that brought me right back to the same language that I had seen in this, in this insert in my son's social studies. So I recognized it. And I mean, I know I had a, I had a, I had an instructor from Malaysia and, and when I was in university and he told us that in, in Malaysia, the indigenous peoples were actually treated, you know, as the dominant culture, everyone else was, was expected to respect their culture first. Right. And so I, I know that that's not an average happening around the world, but how do we actually get to a place where we do respect all of our cultures instead of a dominant culture or instead of seeing one as a dominant culture? And again, this is, um, yeah, the slant is on this specifically, but like it's, I, I do look back to a lot of the language that we use and that we've learned to use. How do we change that perspective? I guess I'll, I'll start in unless Crystal, you want to, oh. <laughs> she, <laughs> she has something to do, but I, I think, well, I think the problem is in the, the conversation about power and, and when people ask a question, it's like, does racism exist or can you have racism against white people or all lives matter? This kind of discourse that creates a formal equality playing field between all people and everyone's treating everyone else the same. And that's not the case, right? So we have to talk about power. We have to talk about power relationships and we also have to talk about how power shifts over time. It's not a, it's not a, a one size fits all forever and all time kind of model that you're looking at. So I think there's a need to recognize, for instance, how racisms manifest themselves differently depending on the group that's being targeted. Um, so I think, for instance, it's appropriate to call Islamophobia what it is and to take note that it's a Canadian problem and it's deeply connected to settler colonial practice both in Canada and abroad. Because I think it's really important to acknowledge this. Um, Israeli's apartheid system is predicated on Canada's reservation system. There's a deep connection between those two things. And part of unpacking all of this and starting to really recognize what racisms, discrimination, violence, and genocide are and what they mean is to look at this through a global lens. 
Um, and so, you know, just recently, for instance, in May 2021, Global Affairs Canada released a statement condemning the violence in the West Bank and Gaza. But unfortunately, the tone of their statement in keeping with Canada's foreign policy in support of Israel is constructed on the very same formal equality platform where power relations are not being adequately represented or understood. So, like I said, there is a system of apartheid in Israel and a long-standing series of gross violations of human rights perpetrated by the state of Israel against Palestinians that go largely unacknowledged when Canada makes statements that fail to understand not only the impacts of illegal Israeli settlements in Palestine, the crimes against humanity and use Kogan's violations of human rights perpetrated by the Israeli state in terms of both its colonial practices in Palestine and the murder of children, which is also an ongoing settler colonial practice that takes place here in Canada in, with respect to Indigenous children. So, and I'm gonna say this for the record, that it is not anti-Semitic to condemn Israel for its foreign and domestic policy or its treatment of Palestinians. In fact, in 2014, 300 Jewish Holocaust survivors and their descendants publicly condemned Israelis treat, Israel's treatment of Palestinians as genocide in the New York Times. And in 2021, two organizations, Jewish Voices for Peace and Independent Jewish Voices, launched a campaign to end the Israeli atrocities against Palestine. And I'm also speaking to you today, I identify as a settler, and I'm speaking to you as the daughter of a Jewish man and a Lutheran woman, both of whom renounced their faith after immigrating to Canada in view of the atrocities that they themselves experienced in two separate conflict zones, and then began working in order to address the systemic and ongoing settler colonial violence against Indigenous peoples in Canada. So for me, Islamophobia is a Jewish problem and a Christian problem. It's an intersectional problem. And all racisms are a problem of white supremacy. And as Audre Lorde is so eloquently articulated, when we stand against one form of oppression, we must stand against all forms of oppression. Otherwise, we risk repeating these cycles of violence. So as Canada comes to terms with the discovery of the remains of 215 kids on the Kamloops residential site, the provincial government of Saskatchewan has committed $2 million to start searching for the remains of more children. And they're asking the federal government to match it. And 38 children um, have been found in Regina, 35 in Lestock, a further 180 across the border in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So settler colonialism in the US is connected to settler colonialism in Canada, so connected to settler colonialism in Palestine and Israel. And if we don't make these connections and unpack the roots of this violence that have, it has economic roots, it has political roots, it is definitely situated in right-wing um, white supremacist extremism. And I, I don't think it's too far to say that our government currently in Alberta is definitely connected to that kind of white supremacist. And I would Absolutely. say that until we start unpacking these things, get to the root of things, what people condemn as a form of radicalism, until you get to the root of things, you're not going to solve these, what are viewed as these isolated incidences or these things that can be relegated to the past. Because all of this is present, it's ever present, and it's never going to end if people don't start addressing this, not only in terms of the local and domestic issues that are a Canadian problem, a problem of white supremacy, that are also global phenomena. Historically has decided which genocides count and which don't. 
We see it all over the world. I learned about South Africa when I was in high school. We spent three months doing nothing but South Africa and apartheid. And of course, this was the 80s. It was right when everything was coming to a head in South Africa. But we learned about it. We learned about um, the slave trade in high school. Nothing about residential schools. Nothing about the horrors committed right here in my, my own country. Nothing about what happened to those children, the um, complicity of the Catholic Church, nothing. But our, our governments in Canada are quite fine with designing education curriculums that tell us about the horrors other countries have committed, but not about Israel, not about what's been happening in Canada historically, which it, it really speaks to, uh, I think, even with our current federal government, the motivation behind truth and reconciliation as rhetoric, which is really about who they are pandering to, who they want to see them as caring and compassionate and kind, when all the, the pretty words in the world aren't, aren't making action happen. There's no change as a result of anything our prime minister says right now. That's not real change. Shedding a few tears as we've seen some politicians do over the the past few weeks, looking um, quite traumatized by the discovery. Well, they're, they're traumatized like Twitter's traumatized for about 36 hours. And then everyone moves on to the next big news headline. And we don't see the real change that needs to happen. Where if you were to, um, this is going, this is probably not a great question. I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, Crystal, if, if you wanted to inspire white women like me, because I think I'm pretty much just an average Canadian descendant of, of settlers and colonizers. If you wanted to encourage us to start listening, to start participating, where is a good starting point for just suburban white women like me who are sincere in their desire to engage, but to engage productively? Great question, and I'm happy that I have an answer for you. Um, uh, (laughs) Good. Yeah. Four years ago, as a response to Canada 150, uh, a colleague um, and I teamed up, uh, Dr. Sarah Komarniski, Ukrainian settler Canadian. Um, We teamed up and we published 150 Acts of Reconciliation. And that was in response to, uh, again, Canada 150, all of my feelings about that. Um, But also the 94 calls to action is very government orientated. It's very institutional. Um, It's for churches and organizations. And so we really wanted a list that people could do at home with their families. They could do um, in their workplace. Um, And so that project has had an enormous amount of success Four years later, we're still selling our posters. We're still um, asked to speak on these things. And, you know, it could be as simple as learn a local greeting in, in the Indigenous language from where you live. Go in your backyard, find your favorite flower, 
learn the indigenous name and, and how that was used for traditional medicine or otherwise. Um, again, back to your question about the language, you know, don't say, you know, I'm a part of my, my wine tribe or my mommy fitness tribe, or that you're going to, that makes me wacky. I, yeah, you're going to have a powwow at, at work when you're actually going to have a meeting, like, like all of these things count, like learn the difference between indigenous, aboriginal, native, um, there's all kinds of nuances in the language. And you know, when you're talking to your indigenous friends or colleagues, like, thank you for complimenting my earrings, but let's talk about white supremacy. Let's talk <laughs> about genocide. Um, let's talk about these things that that need to be tackled and you know just again bringing in the curriculum um, about teaching our children about these historic events you know the only person that, that that is hard for is us children understand my daughter is is now five um you know this is her second year in a row where she's chosen her own red dress for National Red Dress Day in early May. She wore her orange shirt to school on the Monday after the announcement out of Kamloops. Um, children are fantastic. They are resilient. They, mm -hmm. they will understand almost all the time. It, it is us who cannot get over our own feelings. We cannot put our egos aside. Um, we get tripped up. We get nervous. We we're afraid we're going to make mistakes. You know what? Those mistakes are going to happen anyway. It, it really depends on how you respond to that mistake. So 150 acts of reconciliation, activehistory.ca, I think is a fantastic place to start. You've said a few things there, Crystal, that uh, take me back to a discussion I've had with wine moms and that is about uh, how it, it, there's this this prevalent attitude especially in Alberta that we're all right we're all equal under the charter rights anyways we're all equal under the Canadian constitution anyways everyone has uh, legal equality in this country and one of the one of the uh, insights that's come from our conversations is an understanding that we we live within a system that was built by one segment of society, uh, straight white men, for the benefit of one segment of society, straight white men. Even to this day, we live within a system that empowers one section of our society. And it's to their detriment if that system empowers anyone other than them. So it, it, throughout the years, throughout the decades, throughout the, uh, the lifespan of this nation, we've definitely seen adjustments to that system. Every one of those adjustments had to be hard fought for. This wasn't something that was given to anyone, whether it was, uh, as was pointed out earlier in this episode, that uh, Indigenous persons, First Nations persons couldn't even hire a lawyer in this country until 1951. 
I really want people to understand how horrific that is, that they could not even defend themselves against a government that was abusing them, stealing from them. Every little bit of, of victory that we've, we've seen as our constitution and our charter of rights have evolved have been the result of hard fought battles. People died for that to happen. And it was never ever white men in this country who had to sacrifice anything. So when we hear people say, but we're all legally equal in this country, we have a charter of rights, we have a constitution. One thing we as white people can do is to stand against that rhetoric and remind those saying it that there is no true equality in this nation even to this day because the system can only benefit those it was built for and built by why well everyone else is still fighting just to be able to find a place within the system so i thank you for addressing that uh, uh, white supremacy and and uh, settler attitude in this nation and how that's such an impediment to true reconciliation and to action that would actually improve situations on a go forward basis. Uh, Crystal, when you said, you know, sure you like my earrings, but can we talk about white supremacy? How far can you go to ask these questions, right? It's different when we bring you all together and say, okay, we have some questions it feels like it's okay to ask these questions because I told you I was going to ask them, right? Starting up these conversations in more personal surroundings. And, and I mean, I guess that would be something that people could do is say, you know what, I'd like to talk about this. How about we do this at a later date, right? Where, where everyone kind of has a little bit of space to sit down and, and think, okay, here's what I would, here's what I would say, here's how, I think that there is a lot of fear in starting these conversations. And, and that's, it's very, like, it's unfortunate, but again, coming from, you know, our spaces where, where some of us are asking, I'm not sure where to start. I'm not sure how much I should know before I come to this conversation. I'm not sure which part I should already know and which part I should be learning and which part I should know more about. Right. And we can say, well, all of it. Absolutely. But there is a lot of information out there. And one of the things that um, I know that Kathleen and I have talked as well about doing the University of Alberta's um, their their what is it called again? MOOC. Sorry. Uh, their MOOC Indigenous Canada, the massive open online course. Yes, that one. And there's also one through UBC I saw as well. Um, and the only thing that can, and of course I haven't, like I have, I have registered, I haven't gone through all of the documents yet, but one of the things that I was, that concerns me about learning on my own is how do I know that I'm getting the, that I'm understanding what I'm reading? This is, this is something that concerns me. So even bringing, even bringing, I'm looking at this research, I'm looking at that research, this is what I'm bringing to the conversation. It, and, and and this is why I think um, that it's that it's unfortunate that it's a difficult conversation for people to start. And 
I don't know how to get around that other than continuing to have conversations where, where, we're, where we're bringing people on and asking them these questions. But at the same time, it always comes back to, we need to educate ourselves. And it always comes back to that. I, I, don't, I don't really expect an answer so much as a, um, I mean, if somebody's got one, great. But if not, like this, this is this is something that I'm that I I wonder about, right? When I because I think there are more people who would love to have these conversations. But I think they're scared to start them and they don't know who to start them with. <laughs> I I kind of get what Deirdre is saying because this is a concern I have as well, and that is uh, I I want to engage in more fulsome discussions about these issues, but I also don't want uh, women of color specifically to feel as though I'm asking them to do the labor and teach me. You know, there's a fine line there that we're trying to walk where we want to have the conversations, but I'm I'm not demanding that uh, that women of color address my my racist tendencies and tell me what I'm doing wrong. So where where do we find that balance where we can have the conversations? without demanding that the the person we're discussing it with do the work for us? Well, I, I think, I mean, I have some pedagogical strategies that I use with my students because I ask them to read constantly, to read Indigenous scholars, women of colour scholars. In fact, my whole feminist theory class is comprised of Indigenous scholars and fem- and people of color, feminist people of color. So feminist critical race theory, really fundamentally. And and in the end, um, you have to address your own reactions. So the first person you have to have a conversation with is yourself, right? So when you read what indigenous scholars are writing, what people of color are writing about these issues, how, what is your response to this? What is the visceral response that you have? Are you going to be able to identify? Why are you angry about that? Are you outraged about that? Do you feel like you're being targeted or accused of something when you read that? And and that's an important thing to think about because, you know, as um, Robin D'Angelo talks about white fragility, right? And this is why people are so afraid to raise these issues, especially white people with their families and their friends, because there's such a defensiveness, a defensive response that, that comes out. And then all the tone policing comes out and, oh, you're just an angry woman of color and, and these kinds of things, these accusations come out to protect um, um, this white fragility and this this notion of innocence and oh, but I can't possibly be racist, etc. and so forth, right? And so the first person I think you need to have a conversation with is yourself, and then you need to have be taking the risks because there the idea of comfort people associate safety with comfort in you know mainstream canadian society and i I encounter this all the time in my classrooms i i say that as a as a teacher at a university that it is not my job to create a comfortable space for you you don't come to class to be comfortable you can go hang out with your friends and a bunch of like-minded people and you know that's your comfort zone but when you come into my class we're going to talk about white supremacy we're going to talk about genocide we're going to talk about all these things openly and if that makes you uncomfortable well get comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. 